Chapter Four of Sir Dominic Ferrand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Sir Dominic Ferrand by Henry James. Chapter Four. On the evening that succeeded this apparently pointless encounter, he had an interview more conclusive with Mrs. Bundy for whose shrewd and philosophic view of life he had several times expressed, even to the good woman herself, a considerable relish. The situation at Jersey Villas, Mrs. Rives had suddenly flown off to Dover, was such as to create in him a desire for moral support, and there was a kind of domestic determination in Mrs. Bundy which seemed, in general, to advertise it. He had asked for her in coming in, but he had been told that she was absent for the hour, upon which he had addressed himself mechanically to the task of doing up his dishonoured manuscript, the ingenious fiction about which Mr. Lockett had been so stupid, for further adventures and not improbable defeats. He passed a restless, ineffective afternoon, asking himself if his genius were a horrid delusion, looking out of his window for something that didn't happen, something that seemed now to be the advent of a persuasive Mr. Lockett, and now the return, from an absence more disappointing even than Mrs. Bundy's, of his interesting neighbour of the parlours. He was so nervous and so depressed that he was unable even to fix his mind on the composition of the note with which, on its next peregrination, it was necessary that his manuscript should be accompanied. He was too nervous to eat, and he forgot even to dine. He forgot to light his candles, he let his fire go out, and it was in the melancholy chill of the late dusk that Mrs. Bundy, arriving at last with his lamp, found him extended moodily upon his sofa. She had been informed that he wished to speak to her, and as she placed on the malodorous luminary an oily shade of green pasteboard, she expressed the friendly hope that there was nothing wrong with his elf. The young man rose from his couch, pulling himself together sufficiently to reply that his health was well enough, but that his spirits were down in his boots. He had a strong disposition to draw his landlady on the subject of Mrs. Rives, as well as a vivid conviction that she constituted a theme as to which Mrs. Bundy would require little pressure to tell him even more than she knew. At the same time he hated to appear to pry into the secrets of his absent friend. The discusser with their bustling hostess resembled too much for his taste a gossip with a tattling servant about an unconscious employer. He left out of account, however, Mrs. Bundy's knowledge of the human heart, for it was this fine principle that broke down the barriers after he had reflected reassuringly that it was not meddling with Mrs. Rives's affairs to try and find out if she struck such an observer as happy. Crudely, abruptly, even a little blushingly, he put the direct question to Mrs. Bundy, and this led tolerably straight to another question, which, on his spirit, sat equally heavy, they were indeed but different phases of the same, and which the good woman answered with expression when she ejaculated, Think it a liberty for you to run down for a few hours? If she do, my dear sir, just send her to me to talk to. As regards happiness, indeed, she warned Baron against imposing too high a standard on a young thing who had been through so much, 
and before he knew it he found himself, without the responsibility of choice, in submissive receipt of Mrs. Bundy's version of this experience. It was an interesting picture, though it had its infirmities, one of them congenital and consisting of the fact that it had sprung essentially from the virginal brain of Miss Teagle. Amplified, edited, embellished by the richer genius of Mrs. Bundy, who had incorporated with it and now liberally introduced copious interleavings of Miss Teagle's own romance, it gave Peter Barron much food for meditation, at the same time that it only half relieved his curiosity about the causes of the charming woman's underlying strangeness. He sounded this note experimentally in Mrs. Bundy's ear, but it was easy to see that it did not reverberate in her fancy. She had no idea of the picture it would have been natural for him to desire that Mrs. Rive should present to him, and she was therefore unable to estimate the points in respect to which his actual impression was irritating. She had indeed no adequate conception of the intellectual requirements of a young man in love. She couldn't tell him why their faultless friend was so isolated, so unrelated, so nervously, shrinkingly proud. On the other hand, she could tell him, he knew it already, that she had passed many years of her life in the acquisition of accomplishments at a seat of learning no less remote than Boulogne, and that Miss Teagle had been intimately acquainted with the late Mr. Everard Rives, who was a most rising young man in the city, not making any year less than his clear twelve hundred. Now that he isn't there to make them, his mourning widow can't live as she had then, can she? Mrs. Bundy asked. Baron was not prepared to say that she could, but he thought of another way she might live, as he sat the next day, in the train which rattled him down to Dover. The place, as he approached it, seemed bright and breezy to him. His roamings had been neither far enough nor frequent enough to make the cocknified coast insipid. Mrs. Bundy had, of course, given him the address he needed, and on emerging from the station he was on the point of asking what direction he should take. His attention, however, at this moment was drawn away by the bustle of the departing boat. He had been long enough shut up in London to be conscious of refreshment in the mere act of turning his face to Paris. He wandered off to the pier in company with happier tourists, and leaning on a rail watched enviously the preparation, the agitation of foreign travel. It was for some minutes a foretaste of adventure, but, ah, when was he to have the very draught? He turned away as he dropped this interrogative sigh, and in doing so perceived that in another part of the pier two ladies and a little boy were gathered with something of the same wistfulness. The little boy, indeed, happened to look round for a moment, upon which, with the keenness of the predatory age, he recognized in our young man a source of pleasures from which he had lately been weaned. He bounded forward with irrepressible cries of, Gigi! and Peter lifted him aloft for an embrace. On putting him down, the pilgrim from Jersey Villas stood confronted with a sensibly severe Miss Teagle, who had followed her little charge. "'What's the matter with the old woman?' he asked himself, as he offered her a hand which she treated as the merest detail." Whatever it was, it was, and very properly, on the part of a loyal suivante, the same complaint as that of her employer, to whom, from a distance, for Mrs. Rives had not advanced an inch, 
he flourished his hat as she stood looking at him with a face that he imagined rather white. Mrs. Rives's response to this salutation was to shift her position in such a manner as to appear again absorbed in the Calais boat. Peter Barron, however, kept hold of the child, whom Miss Teagle artfully endeavoured to wrest from him, a policy in which he was aided by Sidney's own rough but instinctive loyalty, and he was thankful for the happy effect of being dragged by his jubilant friend in the very direction in which he had tended for so many hours. Mrs. Rives turned once more as he came near, and then, from the sweet, strained smile with which she asked him if he were on his way to France, he saw that if she had been angry at his having followed her, she had quickly got over it. "'No, I'm not crossing, but it came over me that you might be, and that's why I hurried down, to catch you before you were off.' "'Oh, we can't go, more's the pity. But why, if we could,' Mrs. Rives inquired, "'should you wish to prevent it?' "'Because I've something to ask you first, something that may take some time.' He saw now that her embarrassment had really not been resentful. It had been nervous, tremulous, as the emotion of an unexpected pleasure might have been. That's really why I determined last night, without asking your leave first, to pay you this little visit. That, and the intense desire for another bout of horseplay with Sidney. Oh, I've come to see you, Peter Baron went on, and I won't make any secret of the fact that I expect you to resign yourself gracefully to the trial, and give me all your time. The day's lovely, and I'm ready to declare that the place is as good as the day. Let me drink deep of these things, drain the cup like a man who hasn't been out of London for months and months. Let me walk with you and talk with you and lunch with you. I go back this afternoon. Give me all your hours in short, so that they may live in my memory as one of the sweetest occasions of life. The emission of steam from the French packet made such an uproar that Baron could breathe his passion into the young woman's ear without scandalizing the spectators, and the charm which little by little it scattered over his fleeting visit proved indeed to be the collective influence of the conditions he had put into words. "'What is it you wish to ask me?' Mrs. Rives demanded, as they stood there together, to which he replied that he would tell her all about it if she would send Miss Teagle off with Sidney. Miss Teagle, who was always anticipating her cue, had already begun ostentatiously to gaze at the distant shores of France, and was easily enough induced to take an earlier start home, and rise to the responsibility of stopping on her way to contend with the butcher. She had, however, to retire without Sidney, who clung to his recovered prey, so that the rest of the episode was seasoned, to Baron's sense, by the importunate twitch of the child's little, plump, cool hand. The friends wandered together with a conjugal air, and Sidney not between them, hanging wistfully first over the lengthened picture of the Calais boat, till they could look after it as it moved rumbling away, in a spell of silence which seemed to confess, especially when a moment later their eyes met, that it produced the same fond fancy in each. The presence of the boy, moreover, was no hindrance to their talking in a manner that they made believe was very frank. Peter Baron presently told his companion what it was he had taken a journey to ask, and he had time afterwards to get over his discomfiture at her appearance of having fancied it might be something greater. 
She seemed disappointed, but she was forgiving, on learning from him that he had only wished to know if she judged ferociously his not having complied with her request to respect certain seals. "'How ferociously do you suspect me of having judged it?' she inquired. "'Why, to the extent of leaving the house the very next moment.' They were there, still lingering on the great granite pier, when he touched on this matter, and she sat down at the end while the breeze, warmed by the sunshine, ruffled the purple sea. She coloured a little and looked troubled, and after an instant she repeated interrogatively, "'The next moment?' "'As soon as I told you what I'd done. I was scrupulous about this, you will remember. I went straight downstairs to confess to you.' You turned away from me, saying nothing. I couldn't imagine, as I vow I can't imagine now, why such a matter should appear so closely to touch you. I went out on some business, and when I returned you had quitted the house. It had all the look of my having offended you, of your wishing to get away from me. You didn't even give me time to tell you how it was that, in spite of your advice, I determined to see for myself what my discovery represented it. You must do me justice, and hear what determined me. Mrs. Rives got up from her seat, and asked him as a particular favour not to allude again to his discovery. It was no concern of hers at all, and she had no warrant for prying into his secrets. She was very sorry to have been for a moment so absurd as to appear to do so, and she humbly begged his pardon for her meddling. Saying this, she walked on with a charming colour in her cheek, while he laughed out, though he was really bewildered, at the endless capriciousness of women. Fortunately the incident did spoil the hour, in which there were other sources of satisfaction, and they took their course to her lodgings with such pleasant little pauses and excursions by the way as permitted her to show him the objects of interest at Dover. She let him stop at a wine merchant's and buy a bottle for luncheon, of which in its order they partook, together with a pudding invented by Miss Teagle, which, as they hypocritically swallowed it, made them look at each other in an intimacy of indulgence. They came out again, and while Sidney grubbed in the gravel of the shore, sat selfishly on the parade, to the disappointment of Miss Teagle, who had fixed her hopes on a fly and a ladylike visit to the castle. Baron had his eye on his watch. He had to think of his train, and the dismal return, and many other melancholy things. But the sea and the afternoon light was a more appealing picture. The wind had gone down, the channel was crowded, the sails of the ships were white in the purple distance. The young man had asked his companion—he had asked her before—when she was to come back to Jersey Villas and she had said that she should probably stay at Dover another week. It was dreadfully expensive, but it was doing the child all the good in the world, and if Miss Teagle could go up for some things, she should probably be able to manage an extension. Earlier in the day she had said that she perhaps wouldn't return to Jersey Villas at all, or only return to wind up her connection with Mrs. Bundy. At another moment she had spoken of an early date, an immediate reoccupation of the wonderful parlours. Baron saw that she had no plan, no real reasons, that she was vague and, in secret, worried and nervous, waiting for something that didn't depend on herself. 
A silence of several minutes had fallen upon them, while they watched the shining sails, to which Mrs. Rives put an end by exclaiming abruptly, but without completing her sentence, "'Oh, if you had come to tell me that you had destroyed them—' "'Those terrible papers! I like the way you talk about destroying.' "'You don't even know what they are.' "'I don't want to know. They put me into a state.' "'What sort of a state?' "'I don't know. They haunt me.' They haunted me, and that was why, early one morning, suddenly, I couldn't keep my hands off them. I had told you I wouldn't touch them. I had deferred to your whim, your superstition, what is it? But at last they got the better of me. I had lain awake all night, threshing about, itching with curiosity. It made me ill. My own nerves, as I may say, were irritated. My capacity to work was gone. It had come over me in the small hours, in the shape of an obsession, a fixed idea, that there was nothing in the ridiculous relics, and that my exaggerated scruples were making a fool of me. It was ten to one they were rubbish, they were vain, they were empty, that they had been even a practical joke on the part of some weak-minded gentleman of leisure, the former possessor of the confounded Davenport. The longer I hovered about them with such precautions, the longer I was taken in, and the sooner I exposed their insignificance, the sooner I should get back to my usual occupations. The conviction made my hand so uncontrollable that that morning before breakfast I broke one of the seals. It took me but a few minutes to perceive that the contents were not rubbish. The little bundle contained old letters, very curious old letters. "'I know, I know, private and confidential. So you broke the other seals?' Mrs. Rives looked at him with that strange apprehension he had seen in her eyes when she appeared at his door the moment after his discovery. "'You know, of course, because I told you an hour later, though you would let me tell you very little.' Baron, as he met this queer gaze, smiled hard at her to prevent her guessing that he smarted with the fine reproach conveyed in the tone of her last words. But she appeared able to guess everything, for she reminded him that she had not had to wait that morning till he came downstairs to know what had happened above, but had shown him at the moment how she had been conscious of it an hour before, had passed on her side the same tormented night as he, and had had to exert extraordinary self-command not to rush up to his rooms while the study of the open packets was going on. You're so sensitively organized, and you've such mysterious powers, that you're uncanny, Baron declared. I feel what takes place at a distance, that's all. One would think somebody you liked was in danger. I told you that was what was present to me the day I came up to see you. Oh, but you don't like me so much as that, Baron argued, laughing. She hesitated. No, I don't know that I do. It must be for someone else, the other person concerned. The other day, however, you wouldn't let me tell you that person's name. Mrs. Rives, at this, rose quickly. I don't want to know it. It's none of my business. No, fortunately, I don't think it is, Baron rejoined, walking with her along the parade. She had Sidney by the hand now, and the young man was on the other side of her. They moved toward the station. She had offered to go part of the way. But with your miraculous gift, it's a wonder you haven't divined. 
I only divine what I want, said Mrs. Rives. That's very convenient, exclaimed Peter, to whom Sidney had presently come round again. Only, being thus in the dark, it's difficult to see your motive for wishing the papers destroyed. Mrs. Rives meditated, looking fixedly at the ground. I thought you might do it to oblige me. Does it strike you that such an expectation, formed in such conditions, is reasonable? Mrs. Rive stopped short, and this time she turned on him the clouded clearness of her eyes. What do you mean to do with them? It was Peter Barron's turn to meditate, which he did, on the empty asphalt of the parade. The season at Dover was not yet, where their shadows were long in the afternoon light. He was under such a charm as he had never known, and he wanted immensely to be able to reply, I'll do anything you like if you'll love me. These words, however, would have represented a responsibility and have constituted what was vulgarly termed an offer. An offer of what? he quickly asked himself here, as he had already asked himself, after making in spirit other awkward dashes in the same direction. Of what but his poverty, his obscurity, his attempts that had come to nothing, his abilities for which there was nothing to show? Mrs. Rives was not exactly a success, but she was a greater success than Peter Barron. Poor as he was, he hated the sordid, he knew she didn't love it, and he felt small for talking of marriage. Therefore he didn't put the question in the words it would have pleased him most to hear himself utter, but he compromised with an angry young pang, and said to her, "'What will you do for me if I put an end to them?' She shook her head sadly. It was always her prettiest movement. I can promise nothing. Oh, no, I can't promise. We must part now, she added. You'll miss your train. He looked at his watch, taking the hand she held out to him. She drew it away quickly, and nothing then was left him, before hurrying to the station, but to catch up Sidney and squeeze him till he uttered a little shriek. On the way back to town, the situation struck him as grotesque. End of chapter 4